The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, it's man versus man in the FA Cup final. Call it Gwonderwall, as team of aces loved by Oasis take another step to the treble with Gundawan's double. We salute Silky Ilke, talk about handball, the concept, look ahead to West Ham Fiorentina and ask why no one's showing the Women's World Cup yet. All that and more in this Totally Football Show. All right, it's the Tony Football Show, listener, but on a Sunday, Sunday the 4th of June, and eager, itching to talk about the events of Saturday at Wembley and so much more. We have Daniel Story. Hey, Daniel. Good morning, James. Also, Duncan Alexander. Hello. And Jay Harris. Good morning. We're on a Zoom, listener. If it sounds different, it's because we're on a Zoom. So there's that kind of five seconds of uncertainty following everyone's <laughs> everyone's interventions. There you go. That was one right there. 13 seconds of uncertainty. Ooh, there you go. Wow. Bit of a summer holiday feeling. No bit of end of term feeling for you, Duncan, is it? Yeah, I brought in games. Two matches left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Very nice. Jay, what have you brought today? What, in terms of vibes or... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've turned yeah. up in shorts with my shirt unbuttoned and Eric Cantona's new seven-inch under my arm. What about you? I mean, I'm I'm off on holiday to Seville on Tuesday, so this feels like the last proper piece of work I'm going to do for quite some time before I can, you know, right. actually properly reflect on a crazy season. But um, yeah, no no top button undone or anything like that. I'm just in shorts and flip-flops. Nice to know. It'll be a grueling final hour of podcasting before you're released. Daniel... <laughs> You never stop. No, I've got the Champions League final next weekend and I've got Malta yeah. versus England and then the Women's World Cup. So, Right. You're actually getting to see that. Yeah, the, the, the best way, it seems, is to fly to Australia and New Zealand. I'm just <laughs> going out for the knockouts. But I, I do hope that we'll find a solution to actually watch the group stage in this country. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Oh, we should mention, Jay, that you are now friends with me. And by me, I mean, uh, well, you you know, we're always... <laughs> But now with Ben Me out of Brentford. Yeah. Um, basically, to give everybody the background context, when Brentford signed Ben Me last summer, um, I naively thought that he was a very one-dimensional defender, having been the bedrock of Burnley under Sean Dyche. And obviously, Brentford quite liked to play with the ball out from the back. So I was just a little bit hesitant as to how good he would be. And um, yeah, he's actually been an absolute joy to watch. There's been a few... Flicks and tricks, a few fancy passes, as well as the the crunching tackles, the blocks and headers. So for the Athletic, we all had to basically say what our bad prediction was at the start of the season. So I, hmm. I fessed up and said it was um, questioning Ben Mee's ability. And uh, and then he very, very friendly responded on, on Twitter and asked me if I could have a word with Gareth Southgate. So that, that's in the process. For anybody wondering, I'm trying to trying to use my avenues to, to reach out to Gareth. So hopefully in a few months time, Ben Mee will, will get that call up. You'll see if you can get me in the England team. Nice. Duncan, what was your worst prediction of the season then? Well, the thing I got wrong was that I thought every, for the first time ever in top flight history, all 20 teams or, or however many teams there are would, would have 75% pass completion rate or higher, which you think, you know, for the top division in the country, seems fair enough, th- three quarters of your passes reaching a teammate. And um, 
sad and disappointed to report that it was Nottingham Forest that let us down. So, um, welcome to the club. Maybe it was just Forest. Yeah, I mean, just before the last round of games, um, Brentford were just under. But if you rounded it, rounded them up, it was yeah, seventy five percent. So yeah, Forest were on like seventy two. So it's you know that sort of agricultural football that Daniel enjoys, but for the rest of us is a, is a blight. <laughs> mm. Okay, we'll hear about past completion rates and so much more from Saturday's FA Cup final next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LiveScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. FA Cup final. The 142nd FA Cup final took place on Saturday at Wembley Stadium. It was the first ever FA Cup final between Manchester City and Manchester United and it featured the fastest goal ever scored in any final ever. Six touches, 12 seconds and a belter of a finish by City captain Ilke Gundogan. All quicker than the time it takes to say that sentence. Remarkable. We are underway for the 142nd FA Cup final, the first to be played in the month of June. The blue against the red of Manchester. And there's a good try. Oh, incredible! Ilkay Gundogan! Right from the start. That is stunning! What a goal, eh? Yeah, brilliant. Had you taken your seat, Daniel Story? Yes, I had taken my seat. Um, it was... Yeah, it did feel like a kind of gut punch to Manchester United, having travelled down from far and wide without train travel to get to Wembley. Uh, this kind of sort of shock in half the stadium, just completely silent as City sort of thought, oh, we've probably won the cup final now after 13 seconds. Too, too quick for David De Gea, who sort of bent down on one knee as opposed to jumping up to dive. I, I don't think he would have got it, but it was an odd move to sort of mm. try and go lower than the shot as a means to save it rather than higher. <laughs> uh, and I think he, what? yeah, I think he was at fault for the second goal as well. Okay, the, I mean, the first goal, I was, I was very curious to see a goalkeeper's take. BBC had Peter Schmeichel there who completely absolved him. I don't know if that was out of kind of professional deference, but the, the notion that he, he'd already planted his right foot, I think to shift across to his right to cover that space, I think is what undid him. And the, and the bent left knee, which looks so strange as the ball sailed over his head, I, I think is something to do with the biomechanics of that. But as as listener, as lo- any long-term listener will note, I am not a professional goalkeeper. <laughs> that is a thing with De Gea, the planting of the feet. Um, that, right. That's what causes the second goal, I think, is that he does this kind of tiny minute jump uh, that, that plants his feet which is great for pushing off for a dive but if the shot comes earlier than expected or in a way he hasn't expected which certainly was the case for the first one I think was probably the case for the second one as well I don't think he was expecting this kind of screwed volley which was really well directed but had very little power and and it does it does stop him making full length saves it, it, it kind of plays into his favour in that some of the sh- the great shot stopping from De Gea which is clearly his best asset I think comes as a result of that he can make non-high quality shots that aren't quite into the corner he can make them look better than they are I think sometimes yeah he's like notorious for always leading the, the most saves with his feet and legs category the, the coveted category that one um, I mean weirdly people might remember when he signed for Manchester United all those years ago in one of the first uses of data, I think I can remember, like really overtly, 
it was pointed out that he'd let in a lot of long-range goals in his final season in La Liga and, and everyone at the start started shooting from long-range against him thinking clearly this overseas keeper was weak at long-range shots and obviously he wasn't that bad but he does have that sort of error in him or, or misjudgment error's probably a bit harsh mm. I watched this uh, in a pub with my dad in um, Soho and um, mm. we'd sensibly got in there half a, half an hour or so before kickoff, so we had our seats so when that goal went in, my dad basically just leapt out of his seat. It was making this huge din. And I think half the people in the pub had no idea what had happened. And they all just started looking at him really confused. And then I saw clearly this group of Man United fans slowly turn their heads towards the screen and think, no, sure, he's surely not celebrating that a goal's gone in. And then that realisation just hit them, which is quite funny just as a neutral observer to, to see that horror on their faces of really. But then just on De Gea, I feel like we've got to give some of the midfielders and the defenders a proportion of the blame here because they should really be doing better with those second balls. For, for that to happen mm. so quickly and for Gundogan to be so free on the edge of the box 10, 15 seconds into a game, he, he needed a little bit of help there as well. But completely agree on the fact that he overcommitted too early so he was kind of just rooted and couldn't really move. Right. Gundogan actually saying afterwards that that was very much City's plan to use towering uh, Nordic meat slab, etc. Erling Haaland for knockdowns and and win the second balls. And, and boy, did it pay off quickly. And, and part of that, and I, I guess a counterpoint to De Gea's role in the goal was Ortega, the Man City backup keeper, whose uh, who's hoof upfield found uh, Haaland to then initiate the, the you know, United's undoing so very, very swiftly. Uh, yeah, I thought Ortega was, was magnificent. I, I know that there was some kind of controversy over his selection and Guardiola wanting to keep faith in, in the cup goalkeeper, but he's basically an Edison light at the moment in that his passing under pressure is, is extraordinarily good. Uh, there were two or three passes where, in the first half especially, where there was the short pass to the side of the box with the, the, the kind of split centre-backs asking for the ball or split defenders asking for the ball. And he kind of arrows a pass past three Manchester United players into midfield and suddenly City are breaking. And they are Edison passes, those kind of low fizz passes that just stay maybe a yard off the floor to the foot of a midfielder who can turn. And that, there isn't a notable downgrade. I'm, I'm sure Pep Guardiola would point out there are aspects of Edison's game that Ortega can't do. But in terms of the recruitment of a goalkeeper as a second choice to... to you know, to go to Armenia, Bielefeld and, and and source their goalkeeper from there as they were being relegated to Bundesliga 2 is yeah. is a pretty remarkable work because he looks everything like a Premier League goalkeeper now. I, I'd almost say his passing is more impressive than Edison's. He looks even calmer. Like he plays it into, into even narrower gaps, I think. And, you know, I think his shot stopping probably isn't quite as good. But, but yeah, and I think this is also one for the people that go, oh, yeah, but City just go out and buy the best players. It's like, well, not always. They, you know, they make players better. And I think in a lot of ways, yesterday's cup final was down to certain players that they have made into different players in their time at the club. But um, just going back to the goal quickly, I did think it was nice that, you know, someone in a time machine from, say, 19... 23 say the first Wembley Cup final could have come and come to this game and seen a long ball knocked down and a, and a sort of goal <laughs> where a keeper doesn't die they would have been like oh yeah this this is football and it, it was nice it was a nice sort of heritage touch from Pep Guardiola respect I feel if you'd invented a time machine and travelled forward <clears throat> 100 years 
You'd be pretty disappointed yeah. to see the same football being played. You'd want minimum jetpacks, but a whole... I mean, spandex uh, in abundance. But, I think you'd uh. want familiarity, because, I mean, you wouldn't... You the Wem- Wembley 2023 would baffle someone from 1923. They'd be... But just yeah, What would be the most baffling thing? The bucket hats? The sea of bucket hats? Possibly. They'd be like, why are they dressed like fishermen? I don't know. It's probably the closest... <laughs> parallel daniel you were there what would baffle most the man from 100 years ago uh i would i will tenuously pivot from that question and say what would baffle a manchester united fan from 20 years ago is that right city city look city are absolutely brilliant and duncan's right in the way they improve players and gundogan is the obvious example in midfield we probably haven't spoken enough about gundogan yet because it was i mean first of all it was a magnificent goal apart from being the fastest ever was it one of the best ever in in an fa cup final yeah we haven't had an awful lot of nominations over the last decade so um yeah it was a fantastic hit he is he is the sort of player that will do that because it does seem that of any premier league player he is just mr eight and a half out of ten all the time it doesn't matter if your chance comes after 13 seconds or 90 minutes and 13 seconds he's always just on that level completely calm and he has led City over the last few weeks you know the two goals against Leeds the two goals against Everton when the game looked a little bit sticky the two goals in the cup final it would be no surprise if he scored in the Champions League final next weekend and then kind of walked off into the sunset slash the Emirates Stadium um, because he, he has kind of conquered all kingdoms at Manchester City. So, now, I mean, there's a lot to take out of that. Uh, first of all, why is it that this happens a lot at this time of the season with Gundogan? Because Grealish a couple of weeks ago was talking about the fact that this is the Gundogan, Gundogan time almost of, of the campaign. Secondly, why is he leaving? And you think he could go to Arsenal, even though a lot of people suggest that he wouldn't go anywhere else in the Premier League? Well, I, I can see why he's leaving in that for a player to achieve everything and to be in, at the heart of so many of those moments, you know, he has no deep connection to Manchester City other than joining them seven years ago and playing under Guardiola. He is reaching an autumn of his career. I suspect he realises that um, he isn't going to be first choice there forever. The contract length he wants is to kind of secure that future. And he has the chance in the form he's in to go somewhere else and genuinely lead another team. Um I can see why that's attractive. I can see why you'd rather leave at that absolute peak. If if he leaves with a treble, having been played a starring role in the final two months of the season in three competitions, is there anything else mm. left to do? I don't think so. Mm. I, 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 Barcelona is obviously the talk. There's going to need to be some financial management there, I think, to make that happen. Um, it would be a shame to lose him from the Premier League, I have to say. He's one of the most fascinating players to watch in the division. So if he is going to go somewhere else, I would rather it be in the Premier League. And, and there is there is a, a budding tradition of, of, of City refugees making their way down to the Emirates. Yeah, and I think it's also testament to City as well in the sense that you feel like if he was at, say, Liverpool, they'd probably offer him a three-year deal and, you know, based on all his achievements in the last few years. Whereas City do seem to judge when to, to let players go. I mean, obviously, for the first half of the season, everyone had concluded that letting Zinchenko and Jesus go to Arsenal was a was a big error. Turned out maybe maybe not so much. But yeah, I think I'd echo what Daniel said. I mean, he is just he can do anything and like he pretty much can play any midfield role and and yeah, he just decides in the spring to become the sort of Brian Robson style hero midfielder and it and it just works. If he if he does go to Arsenal, 
I'm quite intrigued by the sort of pivot in their transfer policy over the last six months or so. Because in the last two years, obviously, Edu and Arteta have been very focused on buying players under the age of 23, 24. You think of Odegaard, Ramsdale and a couple of others. And then in the space of six months to sign Jorginho and Gundogan, they clearly some maybe feel as if this Arsenal team needs experience, needs players who have kind of won titles and won Champions Leagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just something that's intrigued me quite slightly when Arsenal have been so heavily linked with them. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely bang on of all the kind of bows and arrows and <laughs> shots taken at Arsenal for the way they slightly wobbled in late season. I think the one that probably sticks in in Arteta's mind is is that experience and the experience in central midfield. Um, it's an area of the pitch where they they lost their way certainly at Anfield in that absolutely massive game in which they they lost a 2-2 draw I think it probably was reflected in some of the chaotic elements of of drop points in late season um I don't think Jorginho is going to be a starter every week next season I think his personality and, and his, his his specific role is really useful but I don't think he's necessarily going to play, start every week but Gundogan really should if he can play that kind of dual role that Xhaka played in in mid-season when he was both protecting the defense but also the one that took the ball forward without Martin Erdegaard having to do that every time by himself I think that makes huge sense I mean they would be foolish not to go for him the question is whether Gundogan fancies you know, a change of country and a change of football culture as well as a, a change of club, I mm. suppose. Well, you mentioned Barcelona, another potential uh, destination, although the Catalan club have another big signing that they'd quite like to make this summer, eh? I think we all know who I'm talking about. Now, still on our agenda, Daniel, is a big pile-in on Man United for their failings. I would just quickly point out that they did get back into this game, equalising in the first half, and then very nearly, kind of, if you squinted, taking it to extra time late on in the game after the uh, the entrance of the uh, lively Garnacho. Should we talk about Man United's equaliser? Not quite as impressive as City's opener. What were your thoughts on the handball, eh, Duncan? Well... It certainly caused debates. I mean... <laughs> Everyone was on one side of the question and you were on the other, Duncan. No, not necessarily. I just think it's exactly the sort of scenario where if there wasn't VAR, say, the man, the time-travelling man, um, people would have said, oh, that hit Grealish's hand. It should have been a handball. I mean, you're never going to get consensus over something like that. So, yeah. Did anybody in real time go, that was handball? Did they? A lot of the Man United think, players did, didn't they? Yeah, I think did they? Yeah, okay. they appealed for it. So I mean, it's it, it is what it is. I said really. A few years ago, people were saying that it wasn't strict enough the the handball law, and yeah, maybe it's gone too far the other way. But it's like we're never going to get to a point when everyone just agrees and says, "Yeah, that's fine." It's there's, it's and that's what's frustrating. I think about these. I mean, United played well. I think after the initial. You know they got they played themselves back into the game. They they did deserve to equalise. It was a controversial decision, but at the same time, his Grealish's hand was in a, an unnatural place. Yeah, only only was flicked it? the fingers, but but yeah, it was it wasn't it was above his it was above his shoulder, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, I, I think by the rules by the laws of the game, it, it was a penalty. Um, if if it, the rules as they are, the the interpretation of unnatural position as they are. It was a penalty. Uh, my issue, and it's it's to do with the laws of the game, not the refereeing, nor Manchester United appealing for a penalty for that incident, is that I, it cannot be the case that that offence equal, 
effectively gives you a free shot of goal. I mean, it doesn't feel fair. It is fair according to the laws because the laws say that. What, what would you a give a kind of the laws... a free kick? Uh, a free kick, maybe one of those funny ones that they take inside. The... Yeah, the problem is, is I mean, indirect free kick is the obvious shout, but then that is completely changing the fabric of um, football's laws because other than for back passes that that isn't a thing and hasn't been a thing for a long time it's always been foul in the box is a penalty so it would be a mm. huge shift and it would take a lot of getting used to and I'm not saying it would be any better than it is now because it could just lead to even more like well that was a deliberate handball so that should be a penalty or that should that one shouldn't be an indirect free kick that's I can see how it gets very messy it just feels mad that those goals are worth the same like a player arrowing a shot into the top corner and yeah turning even yeah. I think Peter Schmeichel maybe made the point at half time saying that you know turning a, what was essentially a minor infraction into something which, as you say, has a what is it Duncan, a seventy eight percent chance of, yeah. of being converted into a goal feels like a massively disproportionate penalty. Adrian Clark pitching in on this uh, heated debate Saturday saying, if the interpretation of laws doesn't alter, I'd suggest moving the penalty spot back to fifteen yards, less than that percentage of a goal. What do you think? Uh, it's a nightmare for groundsmen having to paint the pitch and let the D would be all over the shot. So. The, the alternative is to have the shot from where the foul took place. So hmm. if you are fouled wide right by the touchline and it's kind of a, a very low minor moment, then you get the shot hmm. from there, just sort of blasted from yeah. wide and hope for the best. Um, again, that would be great to watch, but it does very much shift the fabric of the game. Wow. I do right. agree with what um, Duncan Duncan said, though, that it feels like the handball law has now gone too far in the other direction because unnatural position is just too subjective because a lot of the time when you're jumping, you are going to kind of use your arms to kind of lift yourself up. So mm. I don't think it's the biggest crime in the world for Jack Grealish to kind of try and compete with the ball and then his hand ends up in the air. And then to give away a penalty that penalty for that well, just doesn't really make... both players had their hands in the air. Well, exactly. That happens quite a lot of the time, but that's an unnatural position. And I even think when players kind of turn their body to try and block a shot and it hits their hand and they give away right. a penalty. I think that's extremely harsh as well. But it's it's one of those things where it's such an imperfect rule. Right. As you said, it's 78% chance that someone will then score from a minor infraction. How, how do you how do you police it? You either do you either clamp down on it, which is what is the case at the moment, or you kind of be more lenient with handballs. There's no perfect um, solution to it. No perfect solution. I, mean, I think anyone who does turn their back on a shot deserves to have a penalty against them anyway, just for basically deserting <laughs> their, their, their post. Maybe that's just me when I play Sunday League. <laughs> right, OK. But, um, all right, with Duncan, what would you have as your... your what would be the, the, the right level of penalty for... Uh, the right level of, of, of policing the, the, the handball rule? I mean, I think football fans instinctively any time the ball hits a player anywhere near their arms will shout handball right. and that that's kind of mm. we've now got to the point where if it's the other the team case. yeah so yeah yeah obviously <laughs> rarely we'll try and con- concede a penalty that method but I mean I'd, I I wouldn't change it I think I don't think it's really? affecting results that much um, I can't think of many games where like a series of dodgy handball penalties has, has changed a, an outcome. It obviously didn't change the outcome of the cup final yesterday. So I think, mm. yeah, maybe a, a little tweak back the other way, but I wouldn't start moving penalty spots or, or having shots from different places. And I think it's fine. Just get on with it. Stand down, Grindsman. All right, well, next up then, let's get on to Man United and what happened to them. 
This is the Totally Football Show, sponsored by LiveScore Bet. With Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet, you can combine markets from thousands of options to create your own bet on the biggest football fixtures in the Premier League, the Champions League, the EFL, and around the world. So if you think you can successfully pick the first goal scorer, the final score, the total number of corners and whether there'll be a red card, then use BetBuilder from LiveScore Bet to make up to six selections and get a single bet with the combined odds. Or if you can't make up your mind, you can choose from the pre-built quick bet options. BetBuilder from LiveScore Bet. Building a bet just got easier. Find out more at LiveScoreBet.com or by downloading the LiveScore Bet app on Android and iPhone. It's over 18s only. Full account terms apply. And of course, please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is the Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Played short. And there's room down the side for Ganacho. Shaw with the ball in. Too high for Varane. McTominay and Ortega's out to save. And it's hit the top of the bar and then over the bar. Corner Manchester United. It was very nearly... A late, late leveller. Okay. Yeah, late series of chance. Well, a late chance, really, for United. They've played well in the kind of closing 10 minutes or so, would you say, Daniel? Did you feel? Yeah, I think so. I think I think if if Eric Ten Hag had his time again, he would probably have brought on uh, Alejandro Garnaccio at half-time. Um, for, he, I mean, he brought him on for Christian Eriksen as a kind of attacking move. I think he could have brought him on for Jadon Sancho. Or he could really... He could even have started instead of Jaden Sancho, who just looks a little bit little boy lost at the moment. Sancho's an interesting counterpoint to people like, I, mean, I guess, Haaland, who came from the same club, but also Gundogan and the signings that City's made. When people make the make the the point that City developed their players, Sancho, who's had a troubled time at Man United, I guess, is, is somebody they would give as an example of a similar kind of player going somewhere else and not having that kind of step forward. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he basically flourished in a particular system, which was uh, and a particular move within that system, which was give and go football. Which was he hasn't for a player of his style, he hasn't got electric place up with a ball at feet to beat a man, which is odd because you think he should. What he is very good at is his movement off the ball, which is he 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 takes the ball to a part of the pitch, he plays a ball inside, someone goes close to him, he plays the ball inside, and then he runs behind the defender. That's what he always wanted to do. And he doesn't really do that at Manchester United. He has to play more like a kind of archetypal winger where you get the ball, you run at a man, you try and beat the man, and then you either play a ball into the box or you, you, you come back and build the move that way. He doesn't really do that. And I think that's 
initially that has broken his confidence a bit and now he doesn't look he he almost doesn't really look like he wants the ball that much which is a real shame in a Wembley final when he's chances to impress he's been better over the last couple of months I would say but he's still not a 75 million pound footballer and what you have in Garnacho is a, is a young player who is really full of confidence because he's not had a reason for it to be knocked yet he's not spent long enough in that team around Veghorst for it to be knocked back yet so he he does run directly at the man he does take on a fullback and he he threatened to change the game he had that chance that he just curled wide he beat Carl Walker once or twice man on man which is unusual for Walker and I think yeah Ten Hag had his time again he'd have been on much earlier are we going to be talking in Sancho's terms about Mason Mount, say, in a season's time, who's currently subject of 50 million to, uh, to Man United rumours right now? What do you think? Do you mean as in, is Mount going to go to Manchester United and it well, won't work out? So Kevin Collett asking the question, are United really desperate enough to get 50 million to get Mount? And what is everyone's view on the right price for Mount this summer? But also, having spoken about one of the previous midfielders that they signed and how things have gone wrong for him, and it's certainly not the first example of that, do we think that Mount is going to enjoy more of his natural role at Man United? Uh, is he going to? Can you see him flourishing there? Is he the player they need? I was just going to say, I think as Daniel alluded to, Jadon Sancho's main skill set's not really being utilised by Manchester United in the right way, and in a game where their main way to threaten City was going to be on the counter. Jadon Sancho is just not the player to excel in that kind of situation. So I wonder if if Ten Hag was taking over Manchester United this summer and a deal for Jadon Sancho was being in the works, if Ten Hag would actually sign Sancho. Whereas I feel like because Ten Hag's been at Man United for a year now, if they're being linked with Mason Mount, it's clearly because he's a player that he wants and thinks he can add a little bit more dynamism to that midfield. I certainly think, for example, Eriksen wasn't at his best yesterday and Mount can kind of come in and, and definitely lead the press a little further forward which I think is what something Ten Hag wants to do longer term maybe doesn't have all the right players to do that at the moment so I think Mount would fit in how much is he worth how long has he got left on his contract one year that's the dispute right that he's got a year left he probably he probably is worth at least 50 million pounds in that in in that regard because not only is a is he a central midfielder who can score goals and assists? But we all know that there's a British premium on, on every player that exists. So it's pro- probably about the right price, especially when you factor in he's coming from a domestic rival. Mm. Yeah, I mean, managers absolutely love Mason Mount. His off-the-ball work is exceptional. And that's he's probably like a 10 out of 10 off-the-ball player and can v- vary between sort of 6 and 8 out of 10 on the ball sometimes. But I think he'd have definitely, as Jay said, he, he would have definitely done better than Christian Eriksen did at, at Wembley yesterday. But I do. I think that John Stones, and we haven't mentioned him, is like a really good counterpoint to that in the sense that, you know, the last couple of weeks or last month or so, um, has been one of the most effective midfielders in Europe. You know, stepping out from the back and, and again going back to the thing about how it isn't necessarily. A, like at, at the start of this podcast, we, we talked about Ben May, and you know, Jay said he didn't appreciate some of his, you know, playing ability from Burnley and, and changed at Brentford. I think we underestimate how much footballers style of play and what they do is decided by their manager you know like lots of you could stick a lot of players in in different systems and they would look immediately very different players and I think um, that's what makes it quite hard to judge in some senses that you know the Mason Mount Chelsea isn't necessarily the exact same Mason Mount you'd get at a club like Manchester United but I think Mm, he definitely has the skill set and the and the building blocks to be a really transformative player for them Hmm, very nice Daniel, have we done enough on United's failings yet or do you want to 
stick the knife in a bit more. Uh, well, no, it's not necessarily. It's not sticking the knife in on on United now because they are emphatically a work in progress. But it's sticking the knife in repeatedly on on what is hope they hope is old Manchester United because. Ilkay Gundogan signed for Manchester City in the summer of 2016. We know that Manchester City have a lot of money. We know that they spend it very well. Gundogan cost, I think, a shade over £20 million at the time. That summer, United paid more, paid £90 million for Paul Pogba, £35 million for Henrik Mkhitaryan and £30 million for Eric Bailly. This is not... A, 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 and, in, and in 2023, Ten Hag looks to his bench for the game-changer and sees... You know the elephant in Wembley Stadium of of Veghorst, and and uh, there was an argument for for starting Veghorst in if you were going to have to go long ball, which it, it ended up having to be because De Gea cannot back himself to pass short, so they were having to go long repeatedly. Mm. There's an argument for starting Veghorst in that situation. I don't think there's an argument for bringing him on as a game changer because he just doesn't offer enough. And yet, I know Anthony was injured, and I know Anthony Martial was injured, but. There just there was just nothing on that bench other than this kind of youthful exuberance of Alejandro Garnacho, which is it's basically a roll of the dice. It's it's bringing a teenager on and hoping that he can change the game. Manchester United should be bigger and better than roll of the dice substitutes. And I thought like the one kind of overarching theme of yesterday was I spoke to a few United fans after the game and they were like, we'd almost rather have lost 3-0 than lost 2-1 and everyone patronising us and saying, oh, you did well, you almost got back into the game. And they're like, this is us against Manchester City. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be getting praised for almost getting back into a game against our City rivals. Like, we should be so much better than this. It, it kind of just reiterated how far they'd fallen that they were like, well, it wasn't too bad. We only lost 2-1. I know City are probably going to go and match our treble, but we did only lose a cup final 2-1. And I just think that's such a damning indictment of what's come before Ten Hag. And probably what he's still battling for the next two years I think really two years I do think the FA Cup finals are quite a nice point of the year because it's they I think people reflect on on the history of football more on cup final weekend than at any other point I think you think back to you know you have those discussions with your mates about what's your favorite cup final or you know xyz and I do think that it Yesterday was was interesting like that because a it was a pretty good cup final we've all sat through much much worse ones than that and also for anyone who remembers the 90s, the idea that Manchester United would be in an FA Cup final and be that much of an underdog is just mad, really. Just, you know, seeing their fans, like seeing the expressions on their fans when the goal went in after 12, 13 seconds, there was a resignation that, that as Daniel says, is is a result of, you know, a decade of just bad planning, bad investment and, and bad execution. And it is, um, yeah, it's a strange how cyclical it, it can be. Okay. One last thing as well, I really enjoyed, um, as you know, as we said, United ended the game pretty well and, and City were, hang, you know, sort of running the clock down. And there was a lovely moment where Haaland sort of played it off to get a corner in the corner <laughs> flag and just sh- like screamed with joy at winning a corner. And it was like quite a nice moment for a 52 goal machine just to be celebrating a corner. I thought, you know, um, it was, uh, it's not all about sort of relentless industrial amounts of goals sometimes it really is about just well it's not at the moment the he's, he's just not scoring anymore I thought I took that to be evidence of the fact that he was delighted to even win a corner now that he can't score goals <laughs> maybe I'm wrong <laughs> maybe I'm wrong anyway we'll see what he does next Saturday when Man City will be aiming to match Man United's treble as they take on Inter for that though of course on Wednesday there's another Anglo-Italian final in Prague in the Europa Conference League. Let's talk about that next. 
We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, sponsored by LifeScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LifeScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Wednesday in Prague at Eden Stadium, I think it's called. Fiorentina taking on West Ham. Woof. Fiorentina haven't won a major European title since 1961. Woof. The Cup Winners' Cup. West Ham... A few years later, 1965, they won European silverware. What's going to happen this Wednesday? Well, for anyone who's not been following Fiorentina, let's get that James Horncastle on the line and ask him what kind of team are Vincenzo Italiano's side. Hey, James Horncastle. Hello, Richardson. <laughs> yeah. What kind of team are Vincenzo Italiano's side? They are a team that plays the highest line in Serie A. They're a team that is pretty disruptive. In terms of they like to get in your face, pin you back. And for that reason, they're the team that concedes the fewest shots in City out as well. They've got a good mix of players. At the moment, Nico Gonzalez is in really good form. Their Argentine winger, I think he scored five in their last eight games. Um, opened the scoring in the Coppa Italia final, which Fiorentina went on to lose to Inter. But yeah, they're just very well coached. You know, Vincenzo Italiano... Every year that he's been in coaching, whatever the level, he's raised the bar. So, for example, when he was a fourth division coach, he got his team into the third division. When he was a third division coach, he got his team into the second division. When he was a second division coach, he got his team into the top flight, kept them up, got the Fiorentina job, got Fiorentina into Europe for the first time in five years, and this year has got them to two finals. So, it's a pretty impressive resume, even though, yeah, he's not as innovative, let's say, as Roberto Di Zerbi, but certainly is someone who a lot of people have their eyes on. And yeah, Fiorentina didn't expect to be where they are at the moment. I think mm. Roma reaching the Conference League final last year was a source of inspiration for some Italian teams to say, hang on a minute, we should maybe prioritise European competition in a way that they hadn't done in the past. Obviously, this competition didn't exist until a year or so ago. And I would say that unless you come up against a Premier League team like West Ham or a La Liga team, the economic landscape, it's, it's kind of leveller uh, for Italian teams to do better in this competition. But still, you have to go and play 16 games to reach this final which is a lot where a lot of things can go wrong 
and yeah, so they deserve mm. full credit to, for being there. Okay. I think Fiorentina have only played 14, actually, because I've got the stat that they've scored 36 goals in those 14 games, making them far and away the highest scorers in the Europa Conference League this season. Responsible for the majority of those, uh, Artur Cabral, who was on the score sheet again on Friday night, as was Nico Gonzalez, when uh, Fiorentina beat Sassuolo 3-1. How is uh, Gonzalez now, though? Because he, in the course of putting in his goal, he absolutely clattered the uh, goalpost with his, I would say, pelvis. <laughs> I don't know, James. I haven't been able to check on Nico Gonzalez's pelvis. I haven't had my hands on it. <laughs> right. So I'll leave that to Fiorentina's medical staff. I imagine he'll be okay. okay. Um, have you had your hands on Nico Gonzalez's pelvis or is that, you know, what's... I haven't. No, okay. Well, we'll no, just have to wait he, for the scan. It's a flight... He's being challenged by a Sassuolo defender, I'm not sure who, who, who in the course of trying to defend the, the ball coming in, basically pushes him onto the post and in midair he slams into it. It's it's brutal stuff, brutal stuff. But You don't um, want to see that. No, yeah. no, absolutely not. Uh, well, there you go. They score a lot of goals. They don't concede many chances. Vincenzo Italiano is the next big thing in Italian management, linked as well with the, the, the Napoli job now that Spalletti's heading back to the farm. What would you say in terms of a weakness of this Viola side? Well, they, as I mentioned, play this high line. And a lot of the times, teams have just gone over the top and have been able to exploit that. And, you know, we've seen it in the Conference League so far this season. You know, I mean, just uh, Basak Shahir, uh, the goalkeeper, just pinging it over the top and it catching them out. Uh, I think also they have been criticised for not being Italian enough, which is strange given their manager's called Vincenzo Italiano, <laughs> um, because mm. uh, they need to have better game management in the big games. That's been one of the things said of them. So, for example, you take the lead against Inter, you know, maybe be a little bit more cautious, be a little bit more speculative in how you approach the rest of the game rather than keep on attacking, staying true to your principles, yeah, just compromise a little bit more. And so I think that, and particularly this this high line that they've got, is is something that teams have tried to tried to exploit. Is that why Italiano kind of used his press conference to say we are going to employ lots of tactical fouls? Was it kind of it seemed an odd thing to say and obviously Moyes then followed up with like, well hopefully the referee then just clamps down on that. But it seemed a kind of bizarre admission to say this is what we're going to do. Is it just a way of saying we can manage this game better than we have done in the past? So I spoke to the club about that after the media day and they said he'd never said anything like that. No such thing. And, you know, whether they're critical of the translation, I don't know. But from what they told me, he was explaining his sort of tactical philosophy, which is if you play with a high line, then you need to have a rest defence, um, whereby if you've got the ball and you're attacking, the other players need to be in such a structure that if you lose the ball and the team counterattacks against you, you need to be quite cynical and stop them from getting behind that high line. And so I think that's all he was supposed to be saying. But of course, now that has become an element in this final because it's been reported that way. It's got back to West Ham. I'm sure there'll be... It will, it will 
be a, it will be something that they they ultimately use, I think, in their preparation. But as, as I said, from from Fiorentina's point of view, they didn't think he said anything sensational. They just thought he was explaining, this is how my team plays. And if we lose the ball in these certain situations, we have to be quite cute about how we stop teams all of a sudden having mm. acres of space in which to attack and expose our vulnerability. So, but, you know, this is very much uh, it's, the, the part of a final sort of um, spin, I suppose. It's not like there's a big tradition of Italian clubs at the moment having managers instructing their team to play cynically in, in European <laughs> finals. Uh, yeah. this... And they're not Italian managers, James. That's the thing. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, it should be a better game, you, you think, than the one last Wednesday you went to? Well, it depends what you want from a game of football, James. Um, I mean... I think I, I think I mentioned. I mean, if you want a game of football from a final, then yes. But yeah. if you want everything else that goes around it, then you know maybe not. But then again, Fiorentina mm. have got one of All the right. most outspoken owners in football. So what's that old old Terry Neal quote? If you want entertainment, go and see a circus. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Some people like caviar. Other people are satisfied by a ham sandwich, James. So no. <laughs> I'm open to both, to be fair. Mm. Uh, okay, well, last Wednesday, some people would say we got the game of football and the circus, uh, but that's a subject to, perhaps for another time. James, thank you so much. I look forward to your company later on with our big end-of-season doubleheader on BT Sport, which may still be going on, listener, by the time you hear this, because we're on until 10.30. What? Stop by, give us a wave. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, we're on until 10.30. Did you not know that? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> Pack a book. Yeah. Okay. All right. All see right. you later, James. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, guys. That's a view on Fiorentina. What about West Ham? They've, they've been finishing the season in better form. And I note from UEFA's notes that Thomas Suche and Vladimir Sufa both played at the Eden Arena in their Slavia Praha days. So that'll be a, a factor, no doubt. Yeah, just hearing James talk about that kind of high line, it does seem set up for Declan Rice to sort of ping balls to Jared Bowen running down that wing. Um, Michael Antonio probably isn't the ideal striker for that type of football, but he, he is very good at making those late runs into the box for a Bowen pullback. So that that sounds like West Ham's best route of success. And and there is going to be so much around Declan Rice on this game. It, it, it almost mm. certainly is going to be his last game for West Ham. He has been, only in in hindsight, I think, will anybody but West Ham fans realise just what a difference he made to that team and how quickly he's grown kind of on the job as a, as a teenager and then under Mark Noble and then as a captain by himself. But yeah, for him alone, I hope he has that kind of send-off moment because he absolutely deserves it. Is your feeling, Daniel, that next season Arsenal are going to be lining up with him and Gundogan in midfield? The Arsenal thing is funny. I, I think if you'd have asked me three or four months ago when Arsenal were flying, I think I'd have said, yes, that is a definitely a perfect fit. But I, I do wonder with the kind of rise of these buy-in rumours and other clubs coming into the mix... Whether Declan Rice is only wants to leave, he doesn't want to leave West Ham because he doesn't enjoy life at West Ham. He wants to leave West Ham because he wants to win major trophies. And I think three or four months ago, you'd have looked at Arsenal and said they are now set up to do that. I don't know if that's now quite as much the case. Um, I would, I have to say, I will miss him in the Premier League, but it would be really nice to see a kind of brilliant 
swashbuckling young English midfielder replaced in the Bundesliga by another one. Um, mm-hmm. Because yeah, with 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 Bellingham almost certainly leaving that league, it, it it's the most stylistic fit I think for an England midfielder where they can international football doesn't then feel completely different to them. Um, and I think he'd be brilliant in that Bayern team. And the fact that Bayern reportedly want to build the kind of that element of their midfield around him is a huge compliment to both him and West Ham's development of him. Well, if, in, if England's central midfield was essentially the Bayern central midfielder and the Real Madrid central midfielder, it would be definitely a, a step forward, I think, from, from days gone past. Very nice. Although we have had Hargreaves and McManaman, you know, turning out. Not at the same time, though. No, the hair was mm. too similar. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Move, moving on. Uh, that's coming up on Wednesday, and I, for one, am really looking forward to it. Thursday, then, I'm also really looking forward to the Intertotally final. Doesn't feature Daniel or Duncan or Jay, although they all perform valiantly. But the two contestants left standing, after all the questions... Uh, skip this bit, listener, if you haven't heard the last uh, couple of editions, but it's producer Charlie against Tom Williams. Yes, Tom, who knocked out uh, the two-time champion Michael Cox, will be taking on... The hustler. <laughs> take, taking on the shadowy figure of uh, producer Charlie. Yeah. Uh, on Thursday, in a special edition that we'll be, we'll be putting out as a standalone, and we might even be... Uh, stand by for announcements on social media, but it might be you might be able to see it live. You might be able to see it live. Yeah, sensational. It is. It is. Uh, Scottish Cup final. Celtic beat Inverness Cali three-one, uh, which means that uh, Andrew Postecoglou has now completed Scottish football, taking the club he took over twenty-five points behind Rangers to back-to-back titles and now a Scottish treble as well. He says he didn't want to discuss his future at the moment. A lot of people do, though. Kaz B wants to discuss Postacoglu. Uh, he makes the point that uh, Postacoglu reminds him of Rocco from Neighbours circa 2006. Does anybody have Neighbours experience and comment on that, the veracity of that? No greater compliment, I think. Mm. Um, Is it not? He, what kind of figure was Rocco? Not a, it's, it's not a complete like-for-like, like, I'd say. <laughs> There's an element of Rocco right. there, but it's not. Is there? No. Okay, but I mean, both just, Australian um, background. So I've just googled Rocco, and Ange hasn't quite got that. Postal Jay wasn't even born in 2006, so I, I, I just <laughs> just about was. He's not quite got the the little slick slicked hair at the back, Postal So okay, similarity, but not right. not an exact doppelganger. Okay, while we're asking questions or or, or mentioning questions from. Lovely listeners. How about Aaron with what on earth is going on at Leeds? I think Aaron's referring to the extraordinary news, or is it extraordinary, that uh, Andrea Radrizzani, in the course of buying another football club, used Leeds Football Stadium as collateral? Is that a fair summary of things, Daniel? Uh, is it that, correct me if I'm wrong, it's that he tried to, I think. I'm not sure it actually. Oh, did he? There was def- oh, he there offered was to use a- Ellen Road as security. Yeah. yeah, which is yeah. is you know is it is no greater. <laughs> it doesn't change the moral defect on his part, um, particularly as he waited three days after Leeds relegation, saw the statements made by other club chairpersons and owners about the kind of sorry state of of going down, and we will be t- we need to be stronger together, etc. and so on, and then released his own statement, which said pretty much exactly that, and then less than twenty four hours later, uh, the news landed that he he'd very much 
words speaking louder than his actions. Right. Although, I mean, it wasn't that he was putting the stadium up for sale. He was just offering it for security on a loan that he was using to buy this other club. Still did feel a bit weird. And not least the fact that from this, I think a lot of people, maybe even the 49ers consortium, discovered that Leeds don't actually own their own stadium. Yeah, that 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 was the the kind of soap opera plot point was that it see all of this seemed to both both that element and the fact that he was offering it as part of security of a loan was a complete surprise to pretty much everyone who has ever been to Ellen Road or would like to go to Ellen Road. Um, it was a I mean it's a masterstroke of deception to manage to do it without anyone else knowing, but it's a I mean it's a pretty low. A, a low bar at Leeds United at, at the best of times, but to manage to sort of shimmy yourself under that bar as Rajrazani has, it seems has is, yeah, is pretty impressive. It, it does it does at least burn all his bridges with Leeds supporters. So there is now only one route, <laughs> hmm. and that is him not being there next season. That the good news is that it was very much for a worthy cause, uh, rescuing Sampdoria, very much at the last second from. Uh, insolvency and starting again from the fourth division and a, a, a club that means so much to so many people uh, if I can be bold, James, should have some proper backing. Mm. If I can be so bold, I suspect that Leeds United fans are not entirely sharing in that good news, silver lining element of the story. I was going to say the exact same. Um, it what? sounds brutal, but if you're a Leeds fan, the last thing you care about is yeah. uh, what's happening at another club. You want there to be a, but a, surely su- you of a all succession people plan. appreciate the yeah. Uh, you yeah. just want All to right. see a, a a plan in place at your club and if and if his attention's elsewhere, Leeds fans are probably thinking, Well, we've got no hope at all of coming back straight away next season. I did see, mm. just to make things worse, well. I did see a news story that mm. described Leeds um potentially appointing Stephen Gerrard and Steve, and Gary McAllister in combination as their dream managerial partnership. Um which just mm. shows that, you know, dreams can be small. <laughs> Really, really small. Right. Or brutal. Savage. Yeah. They certainly can. All right. Moving along then, listener, on this exciting Sunday. Uh, a shout out to Saturday afternoon's other big winners, Barcelona Feminine, who beat Wolfsburg 3-2 in the Champions League, the Women's Champions League. Uh, what a remarkable comeback this was. They were 2-0 down at halftime to Wolfsburg. They came back and won it 3-2. The winning goal coming from former Wolfsburg player Friedelina Rolfo. Good Lord. Check out the Athletic Women's Football podcast for a full breakdown on that. And lots of news about the Women's World Cup, which is coming up this summer, of course. Regarding that, as previously trailed, we're still not certain that the tournament, the World Cup, is going to be shown, I mean, in the UK or a a bunch of other countries. We're less than 50 days away now. Miriam Karabli reporting in Canadian Soccer Daily that FIFA yet to sell the rights in the UK, Italy, France, Germany and Spain, amongst others. The reason being, I think I've got this right, the FIFA want 10 to 15 percent of the figures that were offered by broadcasters for the Men's World Cup. And at the moment, they're being offered in the region of kind of 1 percent. Reasons for that might include the fact that it's in Australia, so it's going to be at, at funny times of day. Daniel, yeah. you're nodding. That's right. And I mean, the one thing you have to admire from FIFA is the chutzpah of their kind of, hey, we're the good guys here. We're just trying to look out for, for everyone involved. <laughs> um, failing to notice the... the they said it was a moral duty of broadcasters to pay this money. And if there is one organisation in world football that knows about moral <laughs> duties, it is, it is Infantino and, and FIFA. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there is a, a vague, dusty semblance of a point in there, which is that it would be nice if the, the, the TV rights were, were higher than is being bidded, but the need for that tournament to be on TV is 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 obviously paramount. I'm already annoyed because I don't know why that tournament is being scheduled to start in late July and then therefore end in late August. So already it's going to clash with domestic men's Premier League's seasons and, and European leagues I see no reason why it's not a month earlier 20th of June to 20th of July but that's the way it is and the, t- the bids they received is not enough but hearing Infantino talk about like moral obligations is yeah it's enough to make you sick mm. in your own hand frankly viewers in the UK will be excited to know that the most advanced talks with a uh, broadcaster are with BBC and ITV to sort that out so that apparently should be okay but elsewhere Italy for example their offer is less than one percent of the amount they paid for the 2022 Men's World Cup despite the fact that they actually will have a team in this one which FIFA kind of raised as a uh, selling point. Uh, Jay? No I was just going to say on the the Women's Champions League final Daniel just mentioned about the um, the Women's World Cup clashing with uh, the domestic season. But this clashed with the FA Cup final, which is a real shame because, you know, it was an, an all-time classic. You know, Barcelona were, were 2-0 down um, at half-time. Lucy Bronze, who's just come back from injury, gives the ball away after three minutes and, and Wolfsburg go and score. And then five minutes into the second half, it's 2 all. And then I think, as you mentioned, um, Rolfo scores an absolute banger to uh to get the victory so it's just a just a really good game and i've seen the highlights because i was out watching the fa cup final and it's just such a shame that it wasn't later on in the evening at slightly more prime time viewing it when everybody could have watched the fa cup final hung around in pubs or whatever and just watched that straight afterwards because mm. it looked like it was a game of real top quality although is it uefa's job to move their schedule around to fit the fa cup well it it's pertinent because there was every chance when I mean this was scheduled before English clubs have been eliminated, so it it could feasibly have been Chelsea versus Arsenal mm. in this final, mm. and that really would have been seen as a a pretty poor decision. Every other Champions League final or every other European final is is nighttime. The Champions League final is at seven forty five UK time next weekend. The Europa League and 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 Conference League are midweek, so they are obviously in the evening. So I don't know why this one was an afternoon game and the others are evenings. It's for the Australian TV market, the timing just... That is probably true, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we head towards the end of uh, our third last, what would you call that, Duncan? Uh, Penny penultimate, I believe. Our penny penultimate show (laughs) of the season. Uh, One or two other little just notes to bring you. Uh, Oh, Leo Messi has played his last game for Paris Saint-Germain. He was whistled by the fans before the match began. It was against Clermont Foot. PSG went 2-0 up. And in echoes of the Champions League final on Saturday, the Women's Champions League final, lost 3-2. They finished the season only one point ahead of second place Lens. Remarkable. Xavi confirming that Leo Messi's return is a total priority for Barcelona. Meantime, in other Spanish news, Eden Hazard has done one from Real Madrid. His contract was terminated by mutual agreement after a fairly disappointing three years at the Bernabeu. Remember, he was their most expensive signing ever. A estimated 146.1 million euros with all the add-ons that he had. And he certainly did some adding on. Uh, 54 pences in three years. Also leaving Real Madrid... We just heard, here's a shock, Kareem Benzema. Where's he going? 
Where's he going, anyone? Wherever the Saudi government wants him to go would be my guess. He's been bought by the Saudis. Haven't we all? It certainly seems that way. It certainly seems that. Yeah. There certainly, um, it certainly seems like the the Saudi that PIF um, Public Investment Fund are making a absolutely massive play um, to improve the standard of their league by signing footballers exclusively aged between thirty three and thirty eight. Cristiano Ronaldo did the kind of interview last week where he said, "This is definitely not what I've been told to say, but I think this can become the fifth best league in the world." Um, mm. And yeah, it sounds like yeah, it sounds like Benzema will be next. I'm sure they would love Lionel Messi at Al Hilal um, to kind of create that. I mean, it would be nice if that all of those Twitter arguments about Messi versus Ronaldo could exist solely in that kind of bubble of Saudi football that we didn't have to hear them anymore. <laughs> but um, who knows? But yes, it sounds like Benzema will be next. All right. Just on um, just on Messi, it occurred to me yesterday while I was musing post-cup final that Mourinho's last league title was in 2015 and it was obviously Messi's last uh, Champions League win as well. Probably you probably make a fairly good case that neither of them will win those things again. Um, mm. Kind of you don't sometimes eras end and you don't realise till a decade or so later. But yeah, unless Mourinho uh, goes to Saudi and maybe coaches Messi to a Asian Champions League final. Yeah, or PSG, I suppose. Um, is PSG. it not more likely that Mourinho ends up at PSG just to make them super likeable? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. But they'll come we'll second. See. So. Well, that brings us to the end then of today's show. We've got another one up on Thursday and then that special final in the Inter totally. For now... Well, I say special thanks to Duncan, Daniel, Jay, special guest producer Jesse and James Horncastle. How's about we leave you, listener, until Thursday with the aforementioned debut single by that Eric Cantona, one man who you could never imagine being bought by the Saudis, bless him. This is his, and rather appropriate actually, debut track, The Friends We've Lost. Watch the trees once you use food. The all of love is much too small Watch yourself in the mirror Someone you hate, someone you love Bad and cry with the worst difference The friends we lost, the time we waste Some of us have to pay the bills our enemies been listening to the totally football show part of the athletic podcast network discover bonus video content by searching for the totally football show on youtube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally the totally football show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by live score bet get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com it's over 18s only please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org The Athletic.